want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. A little science puzzle, some of you probably worked on this. Just imagine uh, if you had access to all the latest technology in a modern science lab. So here's the puzzle. What would be the most effective way to get all the air out of a glass beaker? Some of you have probably done that one before, and if you, if you haven't, you know, some of the, the considerations would be sucking all the air out and creating a vacuum. You find some way to do that. But eventually, the problem-solving mind would answer the way to get all the air out of the beaker is to fill the, the beaker with water. You get the air out by replacing it with something else. So shift the puzzle for a second. <clears throat> what, what would be the most effective way for a justified sinner to get the remaining sin out of their life. And you might consider contending with it or battling this out and, you know, working things out reasonably. And, um, or might it be most effective to replace it with something else. This was the question that was raised by a theology professor in Scotland by the name of Thomas Chalmers about 200 years ago. He, um, he wrote a little treatise entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Get that for 99 cents on Kindle. <laughs> or it's free and audible. Um, Chalmers posed the question... How shall the human heart be set free from its love for sin? In other words, that's, that's like, how does sin love get removed from the soul beaker? And Chalmers argued that sin, sin is not a duty that one performs. Rather, sin is a delight that one prefers. Sin is an affection before it's a commitment. Sin is a desire before it is an act. And therefore, so argued Professor Chalmers, the human heart is set free from its love for sin by the attraction of a new and better object of pleasure. That's like pouring water into the beaker to displace the air. I mean, that's an honest appraisal of the human heart, right? It, no one sins out of duty. Sin is not an obligation that we begrudgingly fulfill. We sin mainly because we want to. We sin mainly because we believe it is more pleasant, the sin is more pleasant or less painful than the way of righteousness. So, you know, if I yell and throw a tantrum or 
go on some sullen pout when I don't get what I want. You know, it, it might be a kind of a thoughtless, habitual, impulsive reaction. <laughs> but at the root, that, you know, whether it's the violence or the pout, it, is it, it, it's, it's not an expression that rises out of reluctance. You know, like, ah, oh, I wish I didn't have to lose my temper. It doesn't work that way. Or, you know, it, it was a lie, but what choice did I have? Or, I, I was overcome by a lustful fantasy, and sadly, I was obligated to give in. It, it just doesn't work that way, mainly. No one sins out of duty. We sin mainly because we want to. We sin mainly because we believe that the sin, no matter what that sin might be, promises something. It promises to deliver more pleasure and less discomfort than the way of righteousness. And so, maybe we would agree with Dr. Chalmers, right? That bondage to sin can be practically broken by holding out a stronger object of attraction a more compelling promise of a greater pleasure. I believe the same argument is put forward by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. And I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand and follow along. I'm going to read Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. Paul writes... What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what Fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its 
and eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is God's bondage to sin breaking word. Let's pray together. Lord, on behalf of these loved ones here in this room, gathered in this place, I, on behalf of them, I want to make a corporate expression of entrusting ourselves to a great promise that you have made, that you withhold no good thing from those who seek you. We're seeking you. We're seeking you now. And we are trusting that as we do, you will withhold no good thing necessary for us to bring honor and glory to you. I pray, O oh God, for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, come upon us. Come upon us. Apply the truth of God's Word. Bring illumination to God's Word. Bring application of the decisive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Pray that you would Put on display the kingdom of God. Let your kingdom come and be manifest, O Father in heaven, for your glory. Pray for healing of broken toes and infected cuts and scrapes and healing of summer colds and allergies. Pray, O oh God, for healing of cancer. Feel compelled, O oh Lord, to pray that you would bring your healing power to bear on mental illnesses, disorders that are chronic. And most of all, I pray, O oh God, that you would bring regeneration, new birth, spiritual rebirth, and the power that you would pour out upon a people to make them holy for your namesake. It's what we ask for. This is what we seek you for. Trusting that you will withhold no good thing based on your wisdom, your providence, your power, your goodness, your love, all that you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. According to Romans chapter 6, the, the doctrine of justification is not meant to produce Christians who are indifferent, 
towards sin, lackadaisical towards sin. It's not meant to produce Christians that go easy on sin. Rather, the doctrine of justification, which is explained and unpacked in Romans 4 and 5, is intended to produce Christians who are dead set against sin in their lives. I get that from Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 15. Look at verse 1. What should we say then? In light of this doctrine of justification. What, what, what are we to do with this doctrine that says, if I'm joined to Christ, then God sees me as if I'd never sinned and as if I'd always obeyed. What are we supposed to do with that? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Verse 15. What then? How should the doctrine of justification function in our lives. He repeats it, right? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. So the big issue in Romans chapter 6 is that this, this sweet doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is intended to get something done. It's meant to motivate us to be more and more and more like Jesus. But how? In union with Christ, God counts us as if we had never sinned. Joined to Christ, God counts us as if we'd always obeyed. So how does that truth work? How does it work the way... Pouring water into a beaker displaces air. How does that work of God displace sin in our lives? In other words, what is the better promise? What's the greater pleasure? What's the sweeter attraction that displaces sin and produces holiness in the life of a justified sinner? That's the question that I want to try to draw your attention to a rather emphatic answer from this text. And the answer that I, I believe is in this text is the truth that ex- the experience of justifying sinners by grace, in, in, in this truth, in this experience of justifying sinners by God's grace, uh, by His grace, God shows, He reveals that the gifts that He gives And the gift that he is, is vastly more worthy of the heart's attachment than sin. Gift after gift after gift. (laughs) Why would we want to keep going the other way? So God and his free gifts, they're greater than the sin. God is vastly more attractive than sin. God is vastly more desirable than sin. And what Romans chapter 6 verses 15 to 23 shows is that while the gifts that sin offers do in fact pay out a wage, as it were, God and His free gifts are greater than sin's wages. Infinitely greater. God's gifts are all free. And the reason God's gifts are all free is that in union with Christ, justified sinners are not under law, 
but under grace. That's verse 15. Paul writes, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but we're under grace? By no means. So to be under law means that in order to be saved, one must provide one's own righteousness. Under law means I'm saved by virtue of the performance of my righteousness alone. Under law, I'm up against sin on the basis of the strength of my own flesh and blood. Under law, I have no help but me. Under law, the removal of God's wrath against me depends on me. But we're not saved on the basis of our own supply and provision of righteousness. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we, we don't bring anything to the table. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. So under law, we provide our own performance of righteousness, which gets us nothing. But under grace, God provides the righteousness of Jesus, imputes the righteousness of Jesus to us freely by grace. That is, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit to those who rely on Christ alone. And according to Ephesians 1.19 and 20, the grace of God is, it is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. So the greater gift, that greater joy that does its work to displace the frail and fragile promise of what you (laughs) or sin can supply, it's it's on the basis of this stunning gift of God's sovereign grace that we experience the free gift of freedom from slavery to sinning. So what makes sin so enslaving, I I believe, is is not merely our inability to get free from it. The, The other side of the problem is that apart from our union with Christ, God is asserting all that he is against us. Slaves to sin, to sinning, are by nature under God's wrath. But in Christ, God removes his wrath from upon us. In Christ, God is no longer against us. God is no longer opposed to us. Instead, all of God's glorious goodness, his wisdom, his power, his mercy, his his providence, his love, his generosity... It's all working together right now for our eternal well-being. And if God is asserting himself happily, wholeheartedly for our good, well then, who or what could possibly have any advantage over us? 
Verse 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Having been set free from sin. Verse 18. Verse 19. Just as you once presented your members of slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Verse 20. You were slaves of sin. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin. You see how that slavery to sin in each one of those verses, it's something in past tense. (laughs) Who is it that set us free? Who gets the credit? Who gets the praise? Thanks be to who? God. Loved ones, if we have been set free from sinning, if we are no longer slaves to disobedience, it's because of God. Thanks be to God. The giver gets all the glory. God gets the glory for pouring out his lavish grace and his unthwartable power. God gets the glory for setting us free from enslavement to sin. Oh, but there's more gifts. Free gifts. God gets the glory for giving us the free gift of slavery to righteousness. This word slavery... Does anybody feel uneasy when we use that term these days? Uh, It draws a strong reaction in these times of racial tension and all the attention given to critical theory and whatnot. Um, We'd be naive to think that since he used the word so frequently in this chapter that for Paul it was a topic of lesser concern in his day. I believe that's why Paul says in verse 19... I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I need to find some vocabulary that that works, albeit imperfectly. In other words, there are aspects of slavery that we would not want to attribute to our relationship with righteousness or with God. So, the human analogy of slavery only goes so far. Paul, okay, that's a given. Nevertheless, it remains a poignant metaphor. And in fact, there are some aspects of slavery that we actually should apply to our relationship to righteousness and to God. And so what does Paul mean when he uses that term? Slavery. Seven times. Verse 6, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 22. Given the limits of human analogies, how are we helped then in thinking rightly about our relationship to righteousness and to God by this this word, slavery? Well, Paul is not implying that our enslavement refers to being forced to do something against our will. Rather, the notion of slavery 
the notion of enslavement to disobedience, unrighteousness, or enslavement to righteousness in God. In Paul's mind, it has to do with the bondage of the will. The bondage of the will. That was an important topic for the reformers. Martin Luther wrote on the bondage of the will. Jonathan Edwards wrote on the freedom of the will. It was an important topic during the Great Awakening. Whether it was Luther or Edwards or the Apostle Paul, or all agree that our will, it's our will that is bound to do sin or to do righteousness. And our wills are bound, that is enslaved, as it were, to do either sin or to do righteousness because by nature, by nature we either see the rewards of sin or the beauty of righteousness as more attractive, as more desirable. No one sins out of duty. We obey sin or we obey righteousness, according to verse 17, from the heart. It's a matter of the will. And we always choose to do what we want to do most. Always. And in this sense, the will is enslaved. Enslaved, enslaved either to sin or enslaved to righteousness. Now, it's true that a Christian can have a very conflicted and divided will. That's a theme that's going to be coming up in Romans chapter 7. True believers, sometimes, and you, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. You will find yourselves conflicted within. We know something's a sin. We know it's a sin to sin. We don't want to sin. And yet, as Paul describes his own experience in Romans chapter 7, we end up doing what we don't want to do even though we really did want to do it, even though we didn't want to do it. Right? We know that. We know that experience. Our hearts are either so corrupt or so renewed in Christ that we, we see sin or we see righteousness as more compelling, more desirable. And it is in this sense that we are either enslaved to sin or we are enslaved to righteousness in God. And loved ones, there is no way to be free. There's no way that righteousness looks better, more compelling, more desirable, more attractive, unless we have been made new in our hearts. Apart from new birth, spiritual rebirth, sin will always look better. Always. But if by grace anyone is joined to Christ through faith, they are a new creation. And as a new creation, with a heart set free, we may be obedient to God, again as verse 17 says, from the heart. And make no mistake, right? <laughs> Obedience 
from a heart set free is a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one may boast. And it seems important to say this right now. Listen, Jesus holds out this gift to you today, genuinely, authentically. He came to earth, and he lived a perfect life, and he died upon the cross, and he rose from the dead so that everyone, anyone who will turn to him and entrust themselves to him in order that their sins are imputed to him and that his righteousness is imputed to them, they are freely justified, counted holy, counted blameless and above reproach. Your wills are no longer enslaved to bondage to sin. Your wills are now slaves to righteousness and to God. And it is now no longer necessary that you present your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. What a gift that is. Look at verse 19. So now, by virtue of justification, God's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, like from the gift of God alone, your heart has been set free to present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. The fruit you get, the fruit you receive. What? Like another free gift? Yes! Once you receive God's free gift to you of freedom from sin and unrighteousness, and once you then receive God's gift, His free gift of slavery to righteousness, then, well, then you get fruit. Free fruit. <laughs> you get the free gift of sanctification. You hear that? Holiness is a gift because sanctification is a gift. Sanctification is a gift because the fruit that leads to sanctification is a gift. And the fruit, namely the... We're talking now about the acts involved in presenting your members as slaves to righteousness. That's a gift. In what sense? Well, it's because the willing and the desiring that move the heart to act, it's all a gift. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation. And you go, whoop, I thought it was a gift. I know, wait for it. <laughs> Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that is with awe and wonder and joyful, heart-pounding reverence, like, wow, 
therefore, and here it is, it is God who is at work in you both to, what? To will and to work for his good pleasure. To work for God's good pleasure. It's a gift. Because to will, to desire, to desire to see righteousness, to desire holiness as you're more, you see those things as more attractive and compelling than sin, all that sin promises to pay out. It's because that's a gift. It's a gift. To will and desire righteousness is a gift. Because being set free from enslavement to willing and desiring sin is a gift. And being set free from enslavement to willing and desiring sin is a gift because the sovereign grace at work within us is a gift. A gift purchased and paid in full by the person and work of our Lord Jesus who is the Christ and that is justification. So loved ones, think about this. This Doctrine of justification is intended to get some stuff done. It's intended to function. It's what we regularly refer to as the functional centrality of the gospel. And it is in this sense that gospel doctrine produces gospel fruit. Namely, gospel virtues like humility and gratitude and generosity servanthood and mutual care and encouragement and joy and it's all those gospel virtues that bear the fruit of gospel community it's all a gift what a gift it is and so Paul exclaims in verse 17 thanks be to God Thanks be to God. Is it possible there could be another gift? Oh yes. There is still the sweetest gift of all. Look at verses 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get, the gifts you get, leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, doesn't it always seem, you know, like when gifts are given at birthdays or Christmas, it sort of build to this climax, you know, the best gift, the biggest gift, the, the most valuable gift. That, we save that one for the last. <laughs> and God's greatest gift of all is the free gift of eternal life. Now, just another thing I think it's important to register um, eternal life is not the opposite of ceasing to exist. 
Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's, the opposite of eternal life is not annihilation. We need to get this right. In Romans chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But, and, and now this is, this is the opposite, right? For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And wrath and fury are something altogether different than merely ceasing to exist. There is a final payout, a wage, if you will, for those who have been seduced by sin. One commentator writes, sin is a slave master. Sin seduces his slaves to disobey God and then disappears and leaves them to suffer death and the eternal punishment of God's wrath and fury. Eternal life, on the other hand, is the free gift of God for those who are slaves of God. It is eternity with God as their eternal giver. God is and will remain the giver as He has always been forever and ever and ever. And there will never be a pause to God giving more and more and more joy to His people. I mean, you, th you think He has outdone Himself with a gift He's already given? <laughs> Listen, it hasn't even really started. God will never run out of infinite fullness of gifts. He will never cease to be the giver because he will never cease to be God. L listen to Ephesians 2, 5 and 7. 7 especially, but starting in verse 5. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, enslaved to disobedience, blind as we could be to how much better his gifts are. Even then, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So that, and, and this is the part, so that in the coming ages, eternity future, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I know there's, there's always some who think heaven's going to be such a snooze fest, you know, playing on our harps all day long, you know. People that don't like music are going to be, oh, we have to sing and sing and sing. Oh, boy. Um, think again. His mercies, His gifts, the fullness of His infinite beauties, they are going to surprise us and delight us and satisfy us in a new and deeper way every morning for a million, million, 
gazillion years, and then some. So what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but have been recipients of God's such lavish, undeserved grace? By no means. Rather, thanks be to God. Rather, worship God. Rather, praise be to God. Rather, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And may the surpassing greatness of these gifts displace sin more and more and more every day. Let's pray together. Well, if all of you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We ask, O oh Lord, for the gift, the fullness of your Holy Spirit today. Your Holy Spirit's work, continuing work today of opening blind eyes, of giving life to dead hearts, of setting free hearts, wills enslaved to do nothing but sin more and more. We pray for this working, this applying of this decisive work of Christ in justifying sinners. And it would be discernible, O oh Lord. This work would be discernible among us by producing a people who are more and more like Jesus every day. Would you produce humility? Would you produce gratitude? Would you produce generosity? Joyful servanthood and mutual care and lay down your life love. Would you produce heartfelt worship? Would you produce witnesses that would proclaim this gospel? to the ends of the earth? Would you restrain sinning? Father, would you give us these gifts? 